Josh, my son-in-law. They're on vacation. Keep them in your prayers coming home today. Um, but anyway, my son-in-law, he loves to hunt. Some of you may know that. Some of you may not know that. And so a couple weeks ago, it, it was the beginning of deer season. I think, what is it called, black powder or, or something? Black powder deer season. And so he got up excited to go deer hunting, and, and he's getting ready to go, but yet he's surprised to find my daughter Cecily already up, fully dressed in camo. Now, those of you who know my daughter knows that she does not love to hunt. But for some reason, she got this wild hair that she was going to go hunting with him. Well, instead of fighting about it, Josh says, well, you know, okay. You know, we men, if we're smart, we choose our hills we die on. We don't die on every hill. Okay, come on, let's go. So they get out to the hunting site, and, and so Josh sets Cecily up in a tree stand, and, and he told her, he said, now look, if you see a deer, take aim, and I'll come running back as soon as I hear the gunshots. But now, be careful. Be careful. Well, the truth is, Josh wasn't worried about having to come back anytime soon. Well, anyway, not 10 minutes passed when he all of a sudden hears gunshots ringing in the air. Well, as you can imagine, it freaks him out, so he starts running back <clears throat> to where he left her. And when he gets closer to the stand, he can hear Cecily screaming out, Get away from my deer! Get away from my deer! He's thinking, what in the world's going on? Well, when he gets there, he sees this cowboy with his hands up in the air. Hi! And he's saying, okay, lady, okay, lady, you can have your deer. Just let me get my saddle off of it. <laughs> now, you probably... I already know this, but, but that's really not a true story. <laughs> but, but I shared that with you to, um, to bring up the point that we all have our hobbies, don't we? But, but have, you ever, have you ever thought about church just being a hobby? See, because to many people, that's what church is. It's a religious hobby. It's become no different than a civic organization like the Rotary Club or like the Lions Club. And then you have other people that, that church is just, well, it's just a necessary sacrifice of time in order to appease the gods. Or, if we're really honest, our wife. It's coerced commitment, it's duty, it's obligation. And so I want you to realize that if that's all church is, that it is a terrible waste of your valuable time. I mean, if there is nothing supernatural going on below the surface this morning, if nothing supernatural is going on in my life because I'm here, then what is the point? We sing songs we really don't know. A lot of times we really don't like. We're asked to give money that we've already committed to someone else, and then to top it off, we sit and listen to some idiot yell at us for 40 minutes.
And if that is all church is to you, then it's just a hobby. And it's a terrible waste of your time. And now you may be saying, hey, Mike, listen, church is much more important to me than that. And I hope it is. But you have to understand, friend, that young people are disengaging from the church at record numbers because of its perceived irrelevance. And they perceive it to be irrelevant because, you know why? Because they are watching how you and I live our lives. See, because our faith that we profess compared to our daily choices demonstrates that our faith must really not be that big a deal. See, for many Christians, there's a massive discrepancy between our profession of faith on Sundays and then our lifestyle the rest of the week. And young people are watching. And so they figure that what I do in church on Sunday must not really be that important because if it was, then it would make a difference in the way that I live my life on Monday. So the young, they surmise that if that's the case, church must really be a south of lame hobby. Now, I realize that most of us here today have a better understanding of church than that. For most of us, church isn't a hobby at all. There is something holy about it. There is something sacred about it. And church is a primary act of worship and the most important priority in our life. And that is our walk with Almighty God. And so church is more than a lame hobby because it's more than church. It is actually our life. Because it is the way that we worship our Lord and our Savior. And a few days ago, Starla and I, we were in Africa. We were helping to build their church. And while I was there, I was thinking about our church back home. I was thinking about us. So today, I want to talk about us for a few minutes. And I want to begin with a conversation about, I'm going to begin the conversation by talking about biblical balance. Biblical balance. The Word of God says in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 18, it is good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other. Why? For he who fears God will escape them all. Or in other words, will avoid all extremes. Now, many people think of balance as a compromise or, or, or as the status quo. But in this case, biblical balance is the passionate pursuit of God within the parameters of clear biblical truth. Now see, when Solomon was writing in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, his context was speaking against the extremes of his day. Because you see, there was, there was a group of people who were teaching sloppy grace and, and people were, were living however they wanted to with no boundaries, no guidelines. But then at the same time, there was another group of religious people who were bound in their Phariseeism or, or their legalism. Kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? 
So Solomon was trying to speak to both extremes, and he was saying, it's good to hang on to this without letting go of that, because the man that fears God, the wise man, he's going to avoid, avoid both extremes. You see, since the fall of man, there has been an imbalance between God's relationship with his creation. And in the Old Testament, we find Job, and he describes what it's like for a sinful man trying to approach a holy God. Most of you are familiar with the story of Job. He had gotten sick, and his friends were saying to him, Job, you're sick because God's not happy with you, so that means there must be sin in your life, and you need to go to God and plead your case. Well, Job says in chapter 9, verse 32, For God is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and do not let dread of him terrify me. God scares me to death. Then I would speak and not fear him. But it is not so with me. So Job said, if I just had someone who understood the holy aspects of God and understood the sinful and broken aspects of man, if I just had me a good attorney, you know, if, if, if Perry Mason was alive, a mediator, a go-between that could speak both of our languages, then I would go before God and I could plead my case. But Job says that's not the way it is because there is this imbalance. There's this separation between God and man, between his holiness and my sinfulness. In other words, on one side you see this God of judgment. But on the other side you see, you see this amazing God of grace that will go to any length necessary to reach the world with his love. On one, hand we have, on one hand, we have God who is judge. On the other hand, we have God who is grace. He stands for mercy, but he also stands for truth. And so how can he be judge and grace all at the same time? How does that work? And so it's easy for us to understand what Job was looking for. The question, is there anyone who can reconcile God with man? And so we begin to see it unfold in Psalms 85, verse number 10, where the Bible says, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. And this is the prophecy of the day when Jesus hung on the cross for your sins and mine. One arm of Christ stretched out towards the holiness of God and one arm of Christ stretched out towards fallen man. And Jesus Christ is the go-between that brought God and man together. Friend, the cross is a foundational cornerstone of the judgment of God and the mercy of God because that's where both truth and mercy met and where righteousness and peace came together. They were bonded through the man, Christ Jesus. God's judgment of sin and his love for sinners met together through Jesus on Calvary's cross. And so we see that Jesus is the mediator that Job was looking for. He was the go-between who can lay hands on both God and man and represent us both before each other. 
And so my point to you this morning is Jesus is the biblical balance. Jesus is the biblical balance. But you see, most of the conflict in churches today is a result of too much focus on the non-essential matters and not enough focus on Jesus. The church in America today fights over elevating our personal opinions to the level of gospel. Now, I'm sorry to break this to you, but our likes and our dislikes are not written in red between the books of Genesis and Revelation. You're not going to find what you like and what you don't like in between those pages. Because God's diversity has more imagination than we will ever know. And most of the arguments in church happen when people get their minds off Jesus and put their attention to the periphery of personal preference. So that means we need to balance what I like and what the body needs, and we need to make room for one another. That is biblical balance. As long as it does not do harm to the blood of Jesus and the work of Christ on the cross, there is room for a lot of differences of opinions. As long as it doesn't do violence to the blood of Jesus. And that means unity does not have to mean uniformity, and diversity does not have to mean division when the church is balanced around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He is man's mediator. And Jesus is the answer to the problems in the world today. And we are going to be a church that puts Jesus first. And we're going to have biblical balance. Because people are so fickle anymore, churches today are like Baskin Robbins. They come in 31 flavors. And consequently, some churches that have a great, refreshing touch of the Spirit, but yet there's a shallow touch of the Word. Then there are other churches that emphasize a great sense of engagement with the Word of God, but it's as dry as a bone when it comes to the Spirit. And so why can't we be a congregation of biblical balance that celebrates the refreshing freedom and liberty and the move of the Spirit while at the same time engage the depths of power that's in the Word of God? We don't have to be one or the other. God is the God of Word and He's the God of Spirit. And a church that is biblically balanced, centered on Jesus, will be a church of Holy Ghost anointing and have a foundation in God's Word. And a church that finds biblical balance is going to be as passionate about lost people as Jesus was. And it's going to be passionate about fulfilling the Great Commission and making disciples like Jesus was. See, it's not an either or, it's both. And so let's put our eyes on Jesus because he is a biblical balance that we need to try to aspire to. You know, whenever you travel, whether it's on a road or a river or you're hiking on a trail, there are markers showing you where to go and where not to go. And when you stay within the lines, the markers and the boundaries, that is where safety is. Well, it's the same way as we travel on our journey to heaven. This book, right here, has the boundaries of life. 
But you see, outside of these boundaries are dangers, are pitfalls, and worst of all, hell. There's no promise of safety. But as long as you stay inside the boundaries, you are staying on the safest part of the path. And there is safety in the balance of God's Word. I want you to know a church that will anchor in the Word and build its foundation on biblical balance, that church will be geared for the times in which we live, but it will also be anchored in the rock of Jesus Christ that stands the test of time. And if we want to be a growing, vibrant, effective church, we have to be a church that strives for biblical balance with Jesus Christ at the center of it all. And I'm not talking about safe middle road. I am talking about biblical balance that is the passionate pursuit of God within the parameters of clear biblical truth. We need to be a church of biblical balance that is centered on Jesus Christ. Well, the second thing I want to talk to you about today, I want to talk to you about continual celebration. Continual celebration is based on Romans 8.28, a scripture that most of us are familiar with. Most of us can quote, if not all of it, part of it. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And so, friends, as we come together each week to worship, we need to intentionally find and celebrate the goodness of God in all circumstances. Now, I realize that people face harsh realities. But we also need to realize God's faithfulness in all things and choose to celebrate without ceasing. Because do you realize that when the Bible says all things work together for good, it literally means that there is not one single thing going on in your life right now that God doesn't intend to use for His glory. That fight you have with your kids on the way to church, God will use that for His glory. Those things that you think are about to take you out, the things that you think are about to destroy you, that thing that you think is the worst thing that has ever happened to you, Romans 8, 28 says God works good in those things. So in order to be continual in our celebration, we're going to have to be intentional in finding reasons to celebrate in all circumstances. You see, it's a choice of your will. Now, my head is not in the sand. I know that the dinner for harvesters is on Friday night, not Thursday night. Thanksgiving is on Thursday. Yes. And I realize that there are plenty of reasons not to celebrate. There are plenty of reasons to check out, to be in a bad mood, and to kick the dog. Listen, I'm married. I've got kids. I've got bills. And you know, maybe your team lost yesterday. But that's no reason to be in a bad mood. Your salvation doesn't depend on whether Alabama won or not. And so many Christians that I run into are more like Chicken Little than they are overcomers. They run around 
crying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And while that may be true in your life, the reality is you can always find something to celebrate. You see, because I want you to know 10% of life is what happens, but about 90% of life is how you respond to what happens. And this is not mind over matter. This is mind based on faith in God. So like the bumper sticker says, attitude is a choice. So pick a good one. You know, I've known people who are going through hell on earth, but yet they were in a better mood than the person who only had a splinter in their finger. I mean, how can this believer who's about to go under still have celebration on their lips while these other people turn a molehill into a mountain and think they're the star in a Shakespearean tragedy? I mean, what's the difference from one or the other? I'll tell you the difference. The difference is the person that's going through legitimate hardships has chosen to celebrate in spite of their circumstance. And we can learn the discipline of constant celebration. You know, several years ago, I had a friend. I know that surprises you to think I actually had a friend, but I did have a friend. Uh, and, and, and when he was asked, how are you doing? He always said the same thing. He always said, absolutely magnificent. <laughs> absolutely magnificent. And, you know, while I appreciated his positive approach, I knew him, and I knew what was going on in his life wasn't absolutely magnificent. And so privately, you know, I asked him about it. He said, listen, Mike, of course there are things in my life that don't warrant an absolutely magnificent response because I'm married too. Of course, there's things that are going bad in my life. But here's the fact. He said, Mike, in Ephesians chapter 2, the Word of God says that Almighty God has called me, little old me, to sit with Him in heavenly places. And that means what's happening in my life is less important than what I cannot see because the unseen world of faith is more real than the seeing world of the difficulties I'm facing right now. And he said, for that reason, I am absolutely magnificent. Friend, look for something to celebrate because it is there. Because remember, 10% of life is what happens, but 90% is how you respond to what happens. Again, let's take a look at Job. After he had lost everything, his kids, his wealth, his health, his wife comes up and tries to cheer him up, and she says, Sweetheart, why don't you just curse God and die? Good vote of confidence there. Thank you, honey. And his response in Job 13, 15 was, Though God slay me, yet will I 
Trust him. Job says, I am a man committed to constant celebration, and although there are boils on my body, although my bank account is empty, although my children are gone, and although I've got a cranky wife, my God is still faithful, and even if he kills me, I am still going to praise him. Constant celebration. David said in Psalms 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. Not only when my bank account is full, not only when I feel good, but all times. And you may be broke, you may be sick, you may be separated, you may be going through struggles, and it may seem like the heavens are brass to you and you feel like you have nothing to celebrate. But David said, I have made a choice. I will intentionally find and celebrate the goodness of God in all things, and I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. And you know, here's the thing. In life, we are always looking for a reason to celebrate, aren't we? Everybody loves a good party. No, oh no, he likes a party. I saw him yesterday. That's my grandson. Yeah, the boy knows how to party. He had cake everywhere. It was just all over him. I mean, we celebrate birthdays. We celebrate weddings. We celebrate anniversaries. And on April 20th of every year, we even celebrate the National Lima Bean Respect Day. Yes! It's not on your calendar? What's wrong with you? National Lima Bean Respect Day. Yes! And here's the thing. What's at almost every celebration event in America? Cake! Well, except at the lima bean day. Then we have lima beans on that day. But every other celebration, we have cake. Cake is synonymous with celebration. You see, but the question is, what do you do when the cake is gone? What do you do when the music stops and everyone has gone home? Well, we quit celebrating. And so in the church... Our lives have been geared to only celebrate the goodness of God on the mountaintop. But I want you to know the Bible says that there ought to be a song in our heart and a skip in our step even when the cake is gone and when everyone has left if I am committed to constantly celebrating the goodness of God. I've gone to churches where their worship service was like a funeral dirge. Praise God, during altar time, the Holy Spirit started moving and God saved someone or healed someone or there was some kind of miracle and the place that was like a funeral parlor just a few minutes earlier comes alive because of what God did. And we thank God for that. We praise God for that. But the question is, are we waiting on God to do something in order to deserve us to praise Him? Oh, wow. Man, if I was holding a mic, I'd just drop it right there. That's a mic dropper. Does God Almighty have to prove himself to you before he is worthy of your celebration? Or, 
Or maybe an alternative could be that we grow up a little bit spiritually and we put our big boy pants on that, and realize that in our celebration of God, it doesn't really matter what God does. Because we understand even if he never parts another Red Sea, God is still God. If he never opens up another blind eye, he is still God. If he ever unstops another deaf ear, he is still God. And if God never bails you out of another jam, he is still God. If he never answers another one of your prayers, he is still God, and he is worthy of your praise just because of who he is. You know, we are all over Psalms 150 like a turkey on a June bug. Verse 2 that says, praise him for his mighty acts. Oh, hallelujah, we, we dance about that. I mean, when he perform, performs a miracle, you don't have to get people excited. They get excited when God does something. But there's a second half to Psalms 150 verse 2 that says, praise him according to his excellent greatness. And there are times when you may not see many of his mighty acts. But his greatness will never change. His greatness is as good in the valley as it is on the mountaintop. His greatness is as good in the rain as it is in the sunshine. It's as good in the midnight hour as it is at noon. And we need to make the commitment to celebrate the goodness of God in all things. See, the problem is that most people only celebrate what they can see. They've got a, you know, if they've got a good life, if they've got their health, if they've got a job, hey, you know, everything's good. You see, but if we only celebrate what we can see, some, is, some are going to be left out because some of you might not be able to see very much to celebrate with your natural eye today. And see, maybe it's because your past is not celebration worthy. Or maybe it's because your current situation that you're facing in your life is not celebration worthy. But church, when you can't see anything to celebrate, when you cannot see anything to celebrate, you have to celebrate what you cannot see. <clears throat> and you have to start celebrating your future. And I promise you, I promise you, based on the Word of God, based on God Almighty who says He cannot lie, when you read about yourself in the Scripture, it is celebration worthy. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord. I think thoughts of peace and not evil. I think thoughts to give you a future and a glorious hope. Friend, listen to me. This isn't the government with some campaign promise, this isn't your grandpa patting you on the head. God has said, I have already planned a future and a hope custom made just for you. And if you can't celebrate what you now see, start celebrating what you cannot see. Because by faith, it is coming. And I want you to know something today, friend. Your future is better than your past. The rest of your life is the best of your life, and your dreams are greater than your memories. Why? Because your God is a good God. Yeah. 
So folks, as a church, we need to come to the place where we can celebrate what we don't see. Because the unseen of tomorrow is more real and glorious than the seen of today. Why? Because eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Do you love God today? Then there is a glorious future for you. Second Corinthians 4, 17, what does it say? For our light affliction. For those little bumps in the road, which only last, only last for a nanosecond, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. In other words, the suffering of today cannot compare to the glories of your tomorrow. And when you can't find something to celebrate, you need to celebrate what you cannot see. And you may be sitting out there and you say, Pastor, you know, I hear what you're saying. Uh, Okay, but you don't know what I'm facing right now. You don't know what I'm going through right now. And I would love to be able to transition into celebrating what I can't see. And I say to you, friend, I understand. I do. I really do. I understand. I know you'd love to believe the promises of God for your tomorrow, but you're so jammed up in your today that you can't muster up enough faith to see past the end of your nose. I understand. And if everyone in this room were honest, they would tell you that they had been there too. Well, imagine with me today that you're just a little kid trying to watch a parade. And the problem is that there's a big wooden fence in your way. And so as you press against the fence, the only view that you have of the parade is through just a small little knothole in one of the wood slats. See, someone over here could be sticking their tongue out at me, and I wouldn't even know it because I can't see him. Someone over here could be doing something much more worse, and I couldn't see it. Someone over here could be getting ready to write me a check for $1,000, but I couldn't see it because my view is limited. And so as you watch the parade, your enjoyment with the parade is based on what you see through that limited view. And so you don't like the current float that you are looking at. Maybe you're an OSU fan and it's a a float promoting OU or vice versa. But whatever it is right in front of you, you don't like. And it's the same thing that's going on in your life right now. You don't like the situation you're in. You don't like your circumstance. You don't like what's going on today. And so... You are forced to try and make a judgment call on your tomorrow based upon the float that you're looking at today. But what you don't understand is that when God promised you healing and when God promised you provision and when God promised you restoration, He was not looking through a little knothole in the fence. 
God was looking from way far up above, and he sees the front of the parade, the middle of the parade, the end of the parade, all at the same time. And when he made you your promise, it was because he saw that float coming down the road that you have not seen yet. And friend, what you need to be praising God for is not what you see on the float in front of you, but it's what is on the float that's a couple back that is already on its way. That is the promise of God for you. He has promised in his word, Psalms 103, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Why? He is a God that forgives you of your sins. He is a God that heals you of your diseases. Hebrews 13 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So God is saying, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. How is it that you can say, God is my helper? You don't have to rely on your job. You don't have to rely on the government. God is your helper. Philippians 4, 19, God shall supply all your need according to his riches by Christ Jesus. It doesn't matter what the stock market is doing. You will be blessed. Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you, God shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. When you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have that in your back pocket. It doesn't matter what people say about you. It doesn't matter what people do to you. No weapon formed against you will be able to prosper. And then Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Can anybody celebrate the goodness of God in your life right now? Stand up with me all over this place. Stand up right now and celebrate. Praise the Lord. Take some time, open your mouth, and praise God. Bless Him today. The Bible says, clap your hands. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. Celebrate. Celebrate him today. Even in difficult times, we celebrate you. I bless you, O Lord. Your praise shall continually be in my mouth. Though you slay me, God, I will praise you.